morning, Hope Vale. Hey, let's stand up. My name is Billy. I'm the worship pastor. Glad you guys are here today. I'm going to sing this song about the name of Jesus, the name that why we gather. Carrie's going to lead us. Trouble won't throw me. Here we go. Let's sing together.
So good. God, it's so good to come to church and just sing that anthem to you, to sing about our faith and to sing it's to you alone uh, that we give our, our praise and uh, to you alone get the glory in all this, this life that we live. God, I'm so reminded um, that our life is so often about the what and the how and what are we going to do and how are we going to do it and what's coming next and calendar driven. And, um, but for this hour, we just get to sit and think about the why. We just get to sit and think about who. And um, God, I pray that um, time would just stand still for a little while as we think about who you are and uh, all that you've done for us and um, why, why it is that um, we gather and why it is, God, that you call us to a life of purpose driven to serve and bless you. Thank you, God, for making us better. That's why we keep coming back. Thank you, Lord. So it's in you alone, Jesus, that we serve and that we live and that we worship. Amen. Hey, glad you're here, everybody. Thanks so much for gathering up. There's a lot of us here again uh, today, so we're doing this thing where we're, we keep asking people to scoot in towards center. So if you've got some black seats, uh, if you would just at least scoot one or two or three over, and uh, that would be great. So before you do that, and while you do that, say hi to somebody around you. We'll see you back in a second. Thanks, gang. Ladies, this event is just for us. My name is Ashley, and I'm here to tell you about the Priscilla simulcast we'll be having here on April 6th. Priscilla is a well-known Bible teacher, and we often do her studies in our adult classes. The day will consist of us digging deeper into God's word, fellowship, and meeting new friends. There will be food and, of course, lots of coffee. <laughs> and registration has already begun, so go to hopevale.org if you're interested in signing up. We'd love to have all of you there and encourage you to invite your lady friends and family along. Make sure to grab one of these cards on your way out, and it has all the information on it. If you have any questions, stop by the welcome desk. All right, we're looking forward to hosting this ladies' event, and thank you, Ashley. Uh, I'm Ken McGillivray. I'm one of the pastors here at Hopevale. I want to welcome you. If you're new with us this morning or newer to Hopevale, uh, we want to invite you to stop by the welcome desk right in the lobby and get some more information about our church. Feel free to ask questions. And we have a special gift as well just for you. So on Sunday, March 3rd, just two weeks away, it's going to be March, everybody. It's going to be March. And that, that's encouraging, isn't it? It's encouraging. That's, that's reason to cheer. Yeah. Yeah, so two weeks away, Sunday, March 3rd, we begin three new adult classes. Uh, women will enjoy our study, Discerning the Voice of God, which will meet in Bay City on Sunday mornings. And by the way, that's a Priscilla Shire study. And uh, then married couples will be encouraged and helped by our class, Marriage, Happy or Holy. And that class meets right here in Saginaw on Sunday mornings. Uh, 11 o'clock, second service time. And finally, we're offering a Pursuing Purity class, Pursuing Purity. And that is, that is for you or for someone you love. If you're navigating the pitfalls of our over-sexualized world, uh, this class will be an encouragement and a very practical help to you. That class will meet in Sunday evenings, very private uh, Sunday evenings, right here on this campus in Saginaw. A Royal Family Kids is an organization that gives people like us opportunities to love and to bless children who are part of the foster care system 
in our community. Many of our, our community groups have been involved with Royal Family Kids for a number of years. And representatives from Royal Family are with us this morning. And they are prepared to meet with you if you want some more information about Royal Family Kids or for you personally, for your community group. Uh, you can meet with them in the hub. So the former library, the hub, they'll be there right after this service. And if you're hanging around for a little while, uh, they'll be in the hub as well after second service. Okay, so uh, talk with them, get some information. Now I'd like to invite our ushers to come forward as we prepare to worship the Lord through our giving. As, as we grow more in Christ, Renee and I personally have been challenged to spend less on things that don't last and to invest more on things that matter, things that do last. And as believers living in America, we all can spend on lots of things that really don't last that long, things that the Apostle Paul said perish even while we're using them. Yeah, they don't last. And so through our giving to the mission of this church to invite people of all ages to know and follow Jesus with us, we have the opportunity to invest in what really matters, what, in what matters for eternity. And so I'm thankful for that. I'm excited about that. I'm challenged. Spend less on what matters less. Invest more in what matters for eternity. So let's pre Let's pray as we prepare to give together. Father, we, we do thank you uh, for your love for us. Thank you for investing so much in us. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have uh, in different times, different ways to invest more, invest well, regularly, cheerfully, generously in what matters for eternity. And Lord, that's what we're about as a church called Hopevale. And so thank you that we can give together this morning, we can give this week online. However we do that, we want to invest in what matters uh, for, for you and for eternity. And so we give you thanks for this time of worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Ken. Yeah, gang, so my name's Billy. I'm the worship pastor here. And uh, glad everybody's decided to make uh, God a priority in your life today and come to church. And... Um, so, Pastor Dan's going to be uh, speaking about a, a sermon today that's going to kind of just be all about <clears throat> this, excuse me, this idea of building our foundations uh, on the things of God and Christ. And this song is a song we sang last week, and we're bringing it back. Uh, and in this song, we sing, I will build my life upon your love. It's a firm foundation. I'll put my trust in you alone, and I won't be shaken. So, what a, uh, just a great declarative statement uh, for your own life to sing and say to God. Um, and boy, isn't that such a beautiful, noble prayer to pray? Um, that this is what I'll do, God, or I'll do my best to do this. And um, God's proud of that. God's proud of us trying to do our best. So um, thank the Lord for that. So we'll continue to worship together. Rod, take us in. We're going to have a seat still, and uh, we'll bring in, uh, we'll stand you up when it's time.
our prayer God would you speak now as we have declared that statement um, word of God speak we pray into our lives that it would change us and mold us more into the likeness of yourself so that we can live for you 
and for those around us in your name. Amen. God bless you, gang. Have a seat. Good morning, Hopevale. Great to be here, isn't it? Wonderful Sunday, incredible worship that we get to share together, lifting our hearts, our eyes, our voices to Jesus Christ, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm Dan Davis, Senior Pastor here at Hopevale. Great to have you along. And for those of you in Bay City, welcome. So great to have you here as well. Hey, before we get to today, I want to talk about next Sunday. Sunday, February 24th, that um, next Sunday, the 24th, is going to mark our halfway points in this series. It's our halftime. We will have had six weeks of the First John series behind us with six more weeks in front of us. And so we are going to, to devote the message time next Sunday to answering questions that we've received from you as you are reading your way through 1 John. It's generated a lot of great discussion through the journal use, through the messages, through the discussion groups, and so we're going to take some time to do that together. Next Sunday, we'll also give you an opportunity to sign up for the next round of these new six-week 1 John discussion groups that start the following Sunday on March 3rd. Next Sunday is a communion Sunday where we together will remember our Lord's death through the sharing of the bread and the cup. And next Sunday as well, finally, uh, we're going to be offering elder prayer, which is the opportunity for you to pray with one of our church leaders, or should I say, have them pray for you. We tried this out last month on Communion Sunday here in Saginaw, and it went really well. So this month we're offering it in both campuses. So next week in Saginaw, it'll be in the hub just off the lobby. And in Bay City, it'll be up front at the stage after the service as well. So uh, we're really excited about this, that we can have these times to pray with you, to pray for you. We'll do that next Sunday. And Lord willing, our intention is to offer this every Sunday that we share communion together. So that's what's coming up next week. But today... As we continue on in our Confidence in the Chaos series, I want to begin today with a quick review of where we've been so far in the book of 1 John. Now, for those of you who have been with us since the beginning of this series, I'm hoping this will crystallize what you've been reading and hearing and talking about. But if you're new to the series or new to the church, welcome, and I Hope that this review will help catch you up to speed with the rest of us. So I want to show you a slide to capture that review. I'm calling this the setting of 1 John. A lot going on, but it helps us think about why did the Apostle John write this letter of 1 John? Who is involved and what's going on? Well, as you can see here, we have three major parties involved, right? Who make up the background or the setting of the letter, uh, I should say three major human parties because this is ultimately about God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. But the interactions going on on a human level involve three different parties. The first is the Apostle John, right? Best friend, faithful follower of Jesus Christ. John, who was there with Jesus, he saw it all. He was an eyewitness to the ministry and to the miracles of Jesus, right? Including the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection. And so John, as a follower, was there all the way through Jesus' ascension 
to heaven. And afterwards, he and the other apostles became church leaders. They spread the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the Middle East, the Mediterranean world, and they established Christ-worshiping communities called churches. And John uh, was a pastor. He was a spiritual father to a group of particular Christians that he is writing this letter to called First John, which leads us to this second group, right? This group that he calls his dear children. These would be vulnerable Christians who are still in the church, right? John fed them. John led them. John loved them. And he worked really hard in his teaching to ground them in the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel because there was also this third group, right? This third group of false teachers who broke off from the church. And they tried through their deception, through their distortion of the truth to persuade these vulnerable Christians to join them because they were saying that they, not John, had the real secret to spiritual enlightenment, that they had the inside track with God. Now, what I'm calling false teachers, John was harsher in his language. Liars, he called them, or as we saw last week, small a antichrist. And why was his language so strong? Well, it was strong because of these three, you know, errors and falsehoods that they were teaching. They denied that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of mankind. That he is the key, the only way for us to experience fellowship with God and salvation and forgiveness from our sins. They also, speaking of that, dismiss the seriousness of sin. As a matter of fact, we saw they even claimed that they were beyond it. That's why John says in chapter 1, if you claim to be without sin, you know, the truth is not in you. They also then downplayed the value of righteous living, of obeying God's moral commands, because to them, this higher enlightened knowledge is what mattered most, right? So you have these three groups, and you can see the arrows that describe the dynamic between them. You've got these false teachers who are deceiving and persuading these vulnerable Christians to join them, right? Leave John, come with us. But then you've got John who just, you know, again, best friend with Jesus there for the resurrection, seeing Jesus afterwards, right? He's loving them, protecting them by teaching them the truth about who Jesus is and at the same time confronting and exposing the lies that these teachers were teaching and showing them to be the counterfeits, the frauds that they really were. This is the setting for 1 John, and hopefully some of that rings true with what we've heard and seen so far. Because in the end, what's John's ultimate goal in writing 1 John? Well, see, he wants to instill a Christ-centered confidence into these Christians so they can stand strong in the chaos of life. He wants to instill a Christ-centered confidence into these Christians so they can stand strong in the chaos of life. Hope that makes sense. Now, you might be wondering what all this history, what all this background has to do with your life, right? Is this just head knowledge? But I want to tell you that before we go on and look at today's passage, that there is relevance, there are parallels to this dynamic to our lives today. Take a look. See, even though the names in the boxes 
have changed. The arrows, the issues remain the same, right? Because here we are, we are vulnerable Christians to spiritual attack, to deception. We are trying to stand strong in our own chaos. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle that is trying to undermine our confidence in Christ. And in this world we live in, there are these alternative spiritualities out there, pseudo-Christian and non-Christian, that are trying to sell us the secret of real connection with God, right? Discrediting historic Orthodox Christianity and saying that there is a better way, a different way. And so they are deceiving, persuading us, right? To deny Jesus, to dismiss sin, to downplay righteous living. It's like we saw last week, right? Back then, the issue, like it is today, separating knowing God from knowing Jesus, right? That you can know God without having to know Jesus, which is so contradictory to what Jesus himself taught. But thankfully, we are not alone in this struggle. And while we don't have the Apostle John as our spiritual father, we actually have something even better. We have the Jesus in history, the one who really lived, the one who really died, the one who really rose again to defeat sin and Satan and evil and death, right? The Jesus in history, and we also have the Spirit in us. The Spirit who John says, as we saw last week, guides us into all truth. These are living, breathing, doctrinal realities that love us, that protect us, right? But they also confront and expose what's around us. Lies about who God is, about who we are, and about our need for a Savior. That's why a series like 1 John is so valuable for us. Because the goal of the Christian life, like we saw last week, 1 John 2, 27, is the same, that we remain in Jesus, that we abide in close fellowship with him. That's where we experience life, and that's where we're going to experience unshakable confidence in the midst of our chaos. Now, that'll preach, right? Yeah. Well, I know that took a little time, but I hope that gets us all on the same page because I got to tell you that what we're going to see today, it just gets even better. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you have a Bible with you, paper or electronic, open up your journal. We'll have the passage that we're going to look at today, right? We're going to read through the rest of John, 1 John chapter 2, make our way into 1 John chapter 3. So go ahead and turn there if you want to follow along. We'll have slides as well. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to begin with verse 28. Here we go. And now, dear children, there's that warm, loving address that John has for the church. Continue in him so that when he, Jesus, appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Now, we've already seen in this series that John talks often about the second coming of Jesus, which has not yet happened. The second coming of Jesus back into this earth where he will finish what he started at his first coming, right? Where he will complete the reign of his kingdom that he started and will do so fully, finally, and forever. See, Christianity is built upon three pivotal moments in history. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again, right? That's our faith. That's the foundation for Christians all throughout the centuries. 
And so just like the Apostle John and those Christians he originally wrote to 2,000 years ago, we too live in what John calls the last hour, right? It's that era between Christ has risen and Christ has, will come again, right? We don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but John encourages us that while we're living in the midst of that, to continue in Jesus, to remain in Jesus, to abide in him, this idea relational closeness of healthy dependency upon Jesus. Because when we do, John says, look at this, we will be what? We will be confident and unashamed. Confident and unashamed before Jesus at his coming. Wow, what incredible words. See, this is what Jesus and the gospel of his grace do for us. That Jesus fills us with confidence, that Jesus frees us from shame. And what a great way to go through life, right? And so even though if we may not feel like that is our moment-to-moment experience, it is our ongoing reality. Why? It's because of Jesus. It's because of his finished work. And so even now, even today, you, I, we can be confident, we can be unashamed that we will stand forgiven. We will stand faultless before Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, when he comes again. And so John says, continue in him, remain in him, abide in him. Verse 29, if you know that he, God, is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See, just like all the other writers of the New Testament, the Apostle John is quick to link together our beliefs with our behaviors. Our beliefs with our behaviors. See what he's doing here, the way he's describing God, it's what you're seeing on the bumper every week, 1 John 5, right? God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God, the very character of our God, the one we worship, is righteousness. And so for those of us who are born of God or born again, because of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, right? Because this is who we naturally are, or should I say supernaturally are, we will do what is right. In other words, as a true child of God, you and I, we need to live and act just like our righteous heavenly father, or at least we should. And John's not saying this is a guilt trip, right? No, he's just saying that this is how new life in Christ should work. But he's also, going back to that diagram, he's also getting these subtle digs in at the church defectors, right? The ones who are inconsistent in their beliefs and behaviors. The ones who are downplaying the value of righteous living, saying it didn't matter. This lie that morality is overrated because super spiritual people are way beyond that. John says, no, that's just a crock. It really is, because if you know God, And you know that he is righteous, and you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See, that's where John is going to go today. He's going to call us, as Christians, those who know Jesus Christ as our Savior. He's going to call us to righteous living. Why? Because God is righteous, and we are born of him. Simple as that. Actually, it's not so simple, though, is it? Because we all know from our own personal experiences that how we should live as Christ followers versus how we actually live, they don't always line up, do they? They don't. 
And so what do we do with that disconnection, with that inconsistency? Well, let's go on and see what else John has to say. And as we do, I want us to drop down a few verses to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, we'll pick up those other verses in between a little later on. Verse 4. John says, everyone who sins breaks the law. And we're not talking about civil law like speeding. No, we're talking about God's moral law. God's moral law as revealed to us in Scripture and God's moral law as is awakened in us through our conscience, right? What is truly right and wrong? What is truly good and evil? In fact, that is the very nature of sin, John says. It is lawlessness. But you know that he, Jesus, appeared the first time to do what? So that he might take away our sins. Why? Because in him is no sin. This is John with a two-edged sword. He is both teaching truth and exposing lies, right? Now you have these false teachers who are diminishing, dismissing the seriousness of sin. They're denying that Jesus is the Christ. And so John comes back and says, you know, the Jesus that I knew, the Jesus that I saw on the cross, the Jesus that I saw after the resurrection, (laughs) he is the Lamb of God, the spotless, sinless, perfect Lamb of God who came, what, to take away the sins of the world. To take away our sins. The sin that offends a holy God. It's a real problem. And it's one that needs a real solution. And Jesus, the Savior, is the only solution. That he came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, no matter how good we are, no matter how hard we try. He came to take away our sins. And by the way, He came to take away both the penalty of our sin, remove our guilt through his shed blood, but he also came to take away the power of sin and its present influence over our lives. Jesus came to break sin's power over us and to take it away from us. Why? So that we could live more righteously and become more like him. That is our journey after we come to know Jesus personally as our Savior. That we are both perfected in Christ in our standing, but we are also progressing in Christ in our character. We are growing in righteousness. That is our journey, or at least it should be, John says. Verse 6. Why? Because no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So follow John's logic here. If Jesus, the Son of God, is entirely sinless in his nature, in him there is no sin. And if the purpose of his first coming was to take away our sin, then John concludes no one who truly lives in him should keep on sinning. Now, obviously, this is a little tricky here, isn't it? Because everyone in this room still sins. We do, right? No matter how godly we are, right? No matter how better we are than the person sitting next to us, right? We still sin. But see, this isn't what John's after here when he says keeps on sinning or continues to sin, right? Promoting this one strike and you're out kind of mentality with God. No. After all, you might remember back to chapter 2, verse 1, where John says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, it's a hat tip to know that we will. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. See, John knows that even if we are making great progress in our faith, If we are still becoming more righteous, we're going to mess up, right? Now, what I think John wants to expose here is this, right? And again, it goes to those defectors, those false teachers. That if 
that if I can take liberty with this verse, I want to add some attitude words, like callously, blatantly, flippantly. No one who lives in him keeps on blatantly sinning. No one who callously and flippantly continues to sin has either seen him or known him, right? Attitude, attitude. See, John is not calling out our imperfection, but he is challenging our indifference, right? Our indifference. And so if we're like, I don't care, it doesn't matter, God's going to forgive me anyways, then there's a problem with that, right? That's what the liars were teaching. No, an attitude like that is a check engine light for the heart. Something is wrong, and so we need to watch out for that attitude of indifference when it comes to ongoing patterns of persisting sin. That's the warning. John goes on, verse 7. So, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, God, is righteous. Don't let anyone lead you astray. It's the exact same verbiage we saw last week when John was confronting wrong beliefs about who Jesus is and our need for him. This week, though, the confrontation isn't wrong beliefs, it's wrong behaviors. It's downplaying the importance of righteous living, of us keeping God's command. Why? Because the one who does what is righteous right, is just as he is righteous. That's what we are to do. Verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Why? Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You probably picked it up right now, but boy, the Apostle John, he is a black and white writer, right? So you've got righteousness, it's from God, but sin, selfishness, disobedience, rebellion, stubbornness, they're all from the devil. And that ever since his original defiance, with God and dissatisfaction with God, Satan, after his fall from grace, has not only been sinning constantly, he's not only been attacking God's moral law, but he's also been trying to entice as many people as possible to join him. And that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Right? But we as Christians can stand against him. Right? We can. Why? Because Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, to break sin's stranglehold upon our lives. So like I said last week, that Jesus defeated Satan at his first coming, and even now he is in the process of destroying his power over us. That persistent sin should have no place in the life of a believer. John makes it clear, right? Morality matters. Verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. Because they have been born of God. Again, not, John is not denying the possibility that we'll still sin. No, the key is found in those phrases, right? Continue to sin. Go on sinning. Where sin and rebellion against God are what primarily define our behavior. I like the way one pastor puts it. He says that John's not talking about isolated acts of sin. He's talking about ongoing habits of sin. Not isolated acts, but ongoing habits, habits that reflect the attitudes I mentioned earlier, right? Indifferent, callous, flippant, blatant. And so John's like, if you have been truly born again, if you are a new creation in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is changing you from the inside out, then how could you possibly go on sinning like it doesn't matter? Because it does. 
New life in Christ leads to life change like Christ. New life in Christ leads to life change like Christ. Verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Now, just to be clear, when John is talking about children of God, he's using that word in the narrow sense of the word as it relates to salvation, not in the broad universal sense of the word, as in we are all God's child as part of the human race, right? No, it's tied more to this idea of, you know, a child of God being the one who is born of God. I mean, this is John's way of saying, you know, they can talk all they want about being close to God. They can talk about the secret of spiritual enlightenment, but if they don't obey his commands, if they don't love their brother and their sister, then they're frauds, they're phonies, they're counterfeits, right? Because correct belief and righteous behavior, loving behavior, they go together. They go together. And as you can see at the very end of, uh, of verse 10 here, these are um, just a, a repetition of those two tests we saw a few weeks ago, right? The obey God test and the love others test, right? Anyone who does what is right, right? Doing what is right, loving brother and sister, the test. And just as kind of a spoiler alert, when we get to the second half of this series, this second one about loving others, loving our brother and sister, we're going to see a lot more of that. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. We've taken in a lot, and as you are processing everything you've just seen and heard and read, you know, I want to share with you what I've been thinking about this past week with regard to this passage, you know, because as I was reading this, you know, in these exhortations to be good, these exhortations to not sin, it got me thinking about the whole topic of motivation. Motivation. Specifically, moral motivation or religious motivation. In other words, what is it that motivates us to try to be good? What motivates you to try to be good? Or to use John's language, to do what is right and not to keep on sinning. I think this is a really important question to ask, especially in church, right? Why should I be kind to others? Why should I keep my promises? Why should I not spread gossip? Why should I be honest with my taxes? Why should I help the poor and the needy? Why should I go to church? Why should I put money in the plate? Why should I read First John? What motivates us to try to be good? Well, as I think about that and as I look out, the hundreds of you here today, there are dozens of different motivations in this room because we're all different, right? Some of us by nature are rule followers. Others of us by nature are a little more rebellious. Some of us grew up in strict homes. Others of us grew up in permissive homes. Some of us have succeeded often. Others of us have struggled greatly, right? personality, temperament, upbringing, all these factors come together, right? And they help shape our motivation, right? So maybe in this room, no two motivations are alike. And yet, as different as we might be, when it comes to being good and doing good, I think a lot of us live with an or else kind of motivation. An or else kind of motivation. What's an or else motivation? It's this. An or else motivation says, I better be good or else. Or else. 
I better be good or else God will be mad at me. I better be good or else God won't bless me. I better be good or else God won't forgive me. I better be good or else God won't love me. And the list is endless. This or else motivation that is primarily rooted in fear. Where what's driving us more than anything else is the avoidance of negative consequences, real or perceived. Right? I think a lot of us go through life living with this big or else threat that we think God has for us, right? Always looming over us where we keep on trying to be good, just hoping we're doing enough to get by. Now here's the thing I think about an or else kind of motivation, okay? That an or else motivation isn't bad, but it also isn't best. An or else motivation isn't bad, but it also isn't bad. See, on the one hand, I think the fear of negative consequences gets a bad rap today. It does. Fear of negative consequences, and that mindset is not only true in culture, it's also true in the church. Where's the grace, we say, or that's so legalistic, we protest. But if you honestly read the scriptures, you have to conclude that God does sometimes use an or else motivation with us as mankind. He does, and so we just shouldn't dismiss that outright and label it as bad, but on the other hand, and I cannot stress this enough, it is also not the best kind of motivation. It's not the best kind of motivation if you want to be good and live a righteous life. No, you need something bigger. You need something better. You need something more. Because what? You will never have confidence if or else is your main motivation to try to live righteously, right? You won't have the confidence, right? No, you're going to go through life insecure, uncertain, wondering, where do I stand with God? Okay, I just better amp it up and try harder and do more good. That's why the Apostle John takes a different approach, right? That he wants to instill in us as Christians this prevailing, enduring, overcoming kind of confidence, right? And in the passage, we saw he motivates us to live righteously in a different way. So what is the motivation for a lasting confidence, right? Here it is, right? That our motivation looks back in assurance and it looks ahead in anticipation. It looks back in assurance, it looks ahead in anticipation. Where we have faith that Jesus died and rose again for me. And we have hope that Jesus is coming again for me. Assurance, anticipation. And John talks about both of these, doesn't he? That Jesus at his first coming did what? That Jesus appeared to take away our sins, verse 5. That Jesus appeared to destroy the devil's work, verse 8. And because Jesus did these things for me through his death, through his resurrection, he took away the or else. He took away the or else and replaced it with absolute assurance. Where now my confidence no longer lies in my performance, but rather my confidence rests in his perfection. Can I say that again? My confidence, your confidence, no longer lies in your performance. But it should rest in Christ's perfection. And that assurance takes me from I have to be good to now what? To I am able to be good. 
because Jesus has broken the power that sin and the devil have over me, right? This absolute assurance that is an invitation to life and peace and victory and rest, where he empowers us to do good, to love well. And you know what? Looking back with assurance, though, that's only half the equation because John also encourages us to look ahead in anticipation, where you and I, we are motivated to keep on doing good because it is fueled by the hope that Jesus is coming again for us. That was the end of John chapter 2, right? And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he, Jesus, appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Continue in Jesus, remain in Jesus, abide in Jesus. This is the power of a living hope. It's why we need to both look back with faith, to look ahead with hope. Why? Because that is the kind of motivation that's going to lead to life transformation. It's also why I save the best for last. And so as we wrap up, I'm going to go back to those verses I skipped over. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. John says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Just let that word lavish wash over you. God does not dispense his love with an eyedropper, like some kind of miser. No, he pours it out upon us like a waterfall, like an ocean. And John says, see what great love the Father has lavished, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It's just this like surprise exclamation, like I can't believe that's really true, but it is. And the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Let me just try to capture John's astonishment here, right? Verse two, dear friends, we, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. This is John going, I can't begin to describe how wonderful this moment's going to be. That human words are not enough. They're not enough. That we shall see him and we shall be like him. That between the completeness of our transformation and the closeness of our communion with Jesus... In that moment, everything that we are going to experience will be beyond our wildest dreams. Every longing of our heart will be fulfilled by the wonder of our King. People, the best is yet to come. It really is. And so John finishes that thought by tying our future hope to our present motivation, verse 3. All who have this hope in him, in Jesus, purify themselves just as he is pure. That genuine Christian hope isn't passive. We're not just sitting around twiddling our thumbs, right? No, genuine hope is proactive. It's passionate. It is purifying, right? It motivates us to want to change. Why? Because I want to be at my best when Jesus comes again. I want to be at my best. And not because I have to out of fear, but because I want to out of love. Jesus changes it all. I want to do good. I want to love well. I want to be better. 
See, that's the motivational power of looking back with assurance. It's the motivational power of looking ahead with anticipation. That we are completely confident that the Jesus who died and rose again is the same Jesus who will one day come back for you and for me. Let's pray together. And God, we want a confidence that matters. A confidence that lasts, a confidence that if it's up to us on our own, we're incapable of producing. But the kind of confidence that looks forward, Jesus, to your return. And that you are doing a work of changing us from the inside out. So God, thank you that you give us the able to and the want to. Because Jesus takes away sin. Because Jesus destroys the devil's work and his power and influence over us and gives us victory beyond compare. Father, I want to pray for all of us. I want to pray especially for those here who um, are anxious. And maybe they don't even know what they're anxious about or they're worried or they're afraid that life's overwhelming uncertainty or the influence of others who are gnawing at the foundation of their faith, that God, your voice of truth would give them hope and give them strength to rise above and to move ahead. And we do that, all of us here, because we stand. We stand on the solid ground of Jesus Christ, our one, our only cornerstone. We pray this in his name. Amen. You know what, gang? You hear, you hear a word like that, and now is your turn. And now is your time uh, of response to say to yourself in the mirror, you know what, self? Your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And it's a great thing to remind yourself of. And it's this great foundation that we have in the things of God and Christ. And uh, Pastor Dan asked that we sing this song, uh, Cornerstone, at the end of our sermon time today. And I think it's so perfectly fitting uh, for this response time. So let's stand and respond together.
cannot trust the sweetest frame but holy trust in Jesus' name Christ alone cornerstone weak made strong in the Savior's love through children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when Christ appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is may God flood your hearts with the hope that we have in Jesus
that your confidence would be rooted in assurance and anticipation. Next week, we'll continue our First John series with the Q&A time, the communion. But as you go from here, may you be made strong in the Savior's love for you. God bless you.